Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. This show is sponsored by Wine Access, my exclusive sponsor and my partner in the Wine Access Wine for Normal People Wine Club. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal. Check out the club and join today and go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP to see what I'm drinking right now. Get 10% off your first order and listen in the middle of the show for more details. Support them. They are amazing. Today, I welcome to the show again, and this time for a much longer and more thorough conversation, Luca Pashina, the head winemaker and general manager of Barbersville Vineyards, the historic property in the Monticello AVA of Virginia, for which Thomas Jefferson designed a mansion. We'll talk about that history a little bit. Barbersville has a long history, which starts around the same time as its current owner's wine history, the Zonin family of Veneto many other wineries around Italy. They purchased Barbersville in 1976, and Gianni Zonin created the first world-class winery in Virginia. Luke is going to tell us the story of Barbersville and also about the Monticello AVA. We're going to touch on some of the challenges and the advantages of the region. Welcome, Luca. Thank you for having me so much. It's a beautiful day here in Virginia. Not too cold, sun is shining, and I'm ready. Good. Well, I am so excited to talk to you because you have been at Barbersville for so long and you are basically one of the founders of Virginia Wines. So there's really no one better to give us the history than you. So let's start at the beginning. Can you give us the history of Barbersville, basically from James Barber through today, talking about also, if you could, for those people that don't know, why Thomas Jefferson couldn't grow Vitis vinifera and and all of that kind of, you know, in the story. Yes, uh, the estate itself, what is remaining of the estate is, is about, uh, in one piece, it's about 840 acres. Although going back to the mid-1700s, it was a very large tract of land, a big plantation like many in this area. And it uh, was owned by a Scottish family, the Barber. The first heir is James Barber, which becomes very involved into local state and federal policies, all the way to becoming governor of Virginia and then secretary of war during the Quincy Adams term. The farm itself, when it was purchased by the Italian family, was still a large farm and uh, mainly they were raising merino sheep. So it has been a farming endeavor for centuries and it still is. Before we go to more modern times, I'd like to just introduce a little bit influence of Thomas Jefferson on this estate. And his influence was predominantly with providing very detailed floor plans to James Barber, his friend. He asked Jefferson, I would like to build a beautiful mansion similar to Monticello. Since you have already done that and done very well, would you provide some floor plans? And he did. The house was built on the estate between 1814 and 1821. The house unfortunately burns on Christmas Day, 1884, and today stands as a ruin. By going back to the days of Jefferson, Jefferson was indeed the first Virginian trackable that planted several times uh, European varieties of grapes. He had planted 
prior to that, some Native American varietals, like what they called fox grapes back then. He hated them though, right? Didn't he like think they were the most disgusting wines ever? Yeah. There's he, there's some writing, there's some quote about how he thinks he thought they were absolutely yes. disgusting. Especially he was saying that when uh, he came back from his period as an ambassador in France, when he's ambassador in France, he learns many things. Uh, one of them was politics, of course. Also, he learned a lot about great food, about great wine, not only learn about great wine, but visit some of the very famous uh, chateaus. And when he returned to the U.S., he really was missing the culinary and the wine world of France. So what he did, he started systematically importing grapes, grapevines from uh, France. He planted that, uh, we believe, was seven times. Oh, my gosh. Was it just phylloxera that killed it, you think? Different people may have different uh, reasons, but in the end, I think phylloxera would have... Uh, being the most likely reason for, for killing perhaps was already maybe a weak vine that had to come all the way through many days of sailing and maybe a little bit dehydrated or not in great shape. But the planting that is more detailed is the last planting he did in 1807. He planted 24 varieties and none of them came to fruition to be able to, for him to pick some clusters and make a bottle of wine he laments. And that was the last big planting that happened in Virginia. So you have to go all the way to the 1970s to see the first plantings of European varieties. Uh, there was a very small planting done with Chardonnay by a, a vineyard called Piedmont Vineyard, not far from here. And then in 76, uh, Barbosil Vineyard was the first uh, commercially sizable planting of many different varieties of grapes. Uh, so I've got to ask, how did Gianni Zonin from Veneto, find right. Barbersville. And then why did he say, you know what? The only person that's ever tried to plant anything here was Thomas Jefferson, and it failed miserably. So here I am, and I'm going to go in there and set it up in Virginia as an Italian in 1976. I know. Yeah, the story, I was able through the years uh, to learn it in depth. Our founder, Janet Zoning from Zoning family, they are from the town of Vicenza in Veneto. He had a strong desire to establish a winery in the United States in the mid-70s. And so he organized a trip through the U.S. And in particular, he decided to visit Napa Valley, which was uh, absolutely very established and uh, already well-known. And then also he heard there were a lot of plantings in the Finger Lakes large volumes. And so he was very impressed about Napa Valley. He was not very impressed with the Finger Lakes because at that time they were strictly growing hybrids and so on. There were a few people already starting on Riesling, but he didn't even heard anything about that. So uh, Virginia came in play because uh, prior to his trip, he contacted a dear friend that was from the same hometown of Vicenza. They know each other since uh, childhood and told him that he was coming to the U.S. and explained why. And then his friend said, well, why don't you please consider also to visit Virginia? I have been here teaching uh, architecture at UVA, University of Virginia, for a few years. And there are five wineries at the moment. The wines are, for the most part, undrinkable because uh, are made by amateurs and, uh, it's, and it's true, they were amateurs and they were growing again 
focusing on this Native American grapes and some hybrids. And so he decided to visit. And prior to his visit, he started uh, looking at meteorological data and altitude and latitude and what have you. So when he came, he visited a few estates that were for sale. There were no winery worth visiting. And so he started uh, looking actively for perhaps a, a tract of land that would suit his needs. And his friend, which was a, an architectural teacher, told him, say, well, we should go and look at this beautiful estate with great history and also connection with Jefferson, which was the first person that really tried seriously to grow European varieties. When he visited this uh, estate, uh, it didn't take him uh, very long to decide to acquire it very quickly. And one thing I remember Mr. Zaring told me many times, he said, uh, I did like uh, Napa Valley a lot. I really chose Virginia because I saw a potential of climate of soil. And he said also, I'd rather be first in a new place than starting last in a famous place. I have to say that he would have done an incredible investment buying a few hundred acres of vineyards in Apavalle. There's no question. But he had really an inclination for being a pioneer. Even in other regions of Italy, he started investing in regions that were not as well known. And so his pioneering uh, uh, attitude applied also when he purchased this tract of land. The purchase of the land happened on April 13 of 1976. That unknown to him and to the person that was with him as a first general manager, Gabriele Rausse, another Italian from his hometown that he hired. April 13 was Thomas Jefferson's birthday, and it happened on also on the bicentennial of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, I've been told a story by Gabriele that when they finished signing all the documents for the purchase, the president of the bank walks in the room and to congratulate. And, they say, and he said, I have something very special for you. And he gave them both a $2 bill, <laughs> which Gabriele Rauschel still has in his wallet. That does not and, surprise me after meeting him. <laughs> and the $2 bill, which has Jefferson. Right. The Declaration of Independence on the back, right? Yeah. And it was the first day that was issued on April 13, 76. So uh, I think there were something in the stars that had chosen that an Italian would come here and on that day purchase an estate and fulfill a dream that Jefferson had. So now he owns the property. Yes. What happens next? Because now you have to make wine. You've got to figure out what to grow. And in the 70s, I have to say, I mean, Italian wine was not in great shape in the 70s. So no. even though he was doing his best to make quality wine. It's just, it was a tough time. So did he bring equipment from Italy? Did he bring a team from Italy? And then how do you decide what to grow, especially when I don't think that the climate of Virginia is that close to what is in Vicenza or Suave or grapes of Valpolicella, right? Or did he try? At the beginning, they did a wise choice. What they did, they planted several different varieties. I know that between 76 and 77, they planted at least 12 different varieties, going from Malvasia Bianca to Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Riesling, Pinot Noir, Alicante Boucher. Oh my gosh. Barbera. So they tried many things. Of some varieties, uh, they only plant maybe 100 vines, just one row. Of other, they plant a little more. And when it comes to equipment, it was really 
difficult because there were no tractors designed to go in narrow rows so they had to plant the vines more far apart than they would have done. Right. At one point, they had uh, this uh, idea and they follow it to send a used tractor but uh, with the crawler, you know, a crawler like with right. uh, tracks. Yes. It was more narrow. And since it was used, then custom stopped it and claimed that it was uh, not uh, healthy because it was still dirty with some soil. And it took them months to release it from custom after it was sterilized. And so, I mean, they, they went through some difficulties that for sure in the beginning. Whereas in, in the West Coast, there were a lot of vineyards. There were already more equipment. Here, there was really not much. It was mostly tobacco, right? That's what was growing in the 70s. I'm sure you were surrounded by tobacco fields, right? It was still uh, the prevalent source of, of income, uh, a very important crop in the 70s. Wine was actually seen a little bit in Virginia as a alcohol and therefore a bit demonized by some people, not all, uh, but uh, you know they had some uh, they have some difficulties and uh, a lot of people were, uh, telling them that it would have not worked, it would have failed. But then they had went through a period of changes of several uh, estate director on the estate from uh, eighty two till ninety. They had six different uh, oh my gosh. wine directors all oh from my Italy gosh. and. Some they would just come over and spend a few months and disappear and go somewhere else. They had a rough beginning. Then enter you, 1990. What were you doing before that? Tell us about your life in Alba and then how you wound up from Piemonte to Barbersville. <laughs> it all started from sending 70 plus letters uh, with my curriculum to wine families in Europe, not just in Italy. They were focused and dedicated to excellence from uh, fine uh, grape growing. And the first to engage was uh, the founder, Johnny Zoning, that asked me to consider to go to Virginia for uh, three months to observe the harvest as an intern without asking questions and just listening and do what I was asked to do and come back and give a report on how to improve quality. The quality until that point... I have to be honest, there were some good wines, there were some mediocre wines, and there were no great wines. And they were looking to unlock the potential of of this place because they knew it could be better, but they had yet to taste a great bottle of wine. Wait, let me go back to two things. One, just so that people know, you grew up in Alba. Yes. And you went to school. You went to Enology School in Alba. So yes, when you're saying that you were putting your CV forward, you had a prestigious school behind you. And I, yeah. the school at Alba, Geisenheim in Bordeaux, there's a few schools around Europe for yes. enology and viticulture that are very prestigious. And the one in Alba is one of them. So the fact yes. that you took this opportunity, the reason they were giving you this consulting opportunity is because you were already well, well trained. So I just want to go back yes. and say that. Yes. And the other thing I want to ask, though, did they have any problems? Because Virginia has a couple of a- attributes, which we'll talk about in terms of terroir. But one thing is that there's soil fertility issues, meaning the soil can be too fertile, which is why tobacco mm-hmm. grows so well there. And then there's a lot of pests, too, including phylloxera. Phylloxera is rampant all over the East mm-hmm. Coast. So mm-hmm. how did they make sure that they were able to plant these grapes without a disaster? And did they have any problems with phylloxera? The, the main problem 
that I found when I came here was not phylloxera because phylloxera is easily controlled by grafting European vines on American rootstock. Also, when it came to weather, yes, there are weather patterns in Virginia that can be difficult. Some vintages, but so is true where I'm from in Piemonte. In Piemonte, we can have a very dry growing season and we can have one very wet. So I grew up in a region where there was alternation of weather pattern. If I were to come from a region, perhaps some area of Chile, Australia, or some parts of the West Coast, when you your main concern is water, have enough water to irrigate because you are almost in a desert area. I can see somebody coming to Virginia and losing his brain over... And I have heard those stories. I'm sure yeah, that you know so, of people. There are stories of people coming from California to both the Finger Lakes and Virginia and just saying, this is too freaking hard. I can't do this. Yes. And I think that's why a lot of people either yeah. are from the East Coast or they're from Europe. Exactly. But the, but the one the one thing that was interesting into unlocking what the, the main problem was here, it came not as much from uh, being from Italy. Or What happened is that I was fortunate that in the 80s, working for this uh, Italian uh, winery, Luigi Borca in Canelli, not far from Alba, I work with them. I traveled a lot. Uh, I work in South Italy, North Italy. I did three months in the Penedes in Spain. I did one year of internship in the U.S. in 86, 87. Uh-huh. Coincidentally, six months in Napa Valley, six months in upstate New York. Uh-huh. So when I was in California, I recall that uh, they were replanting a lot of vineyards due to diseases like phylloxera and due to viruses on plants. The reason is that a lot of the vineyard planted in California came originally from immigrants. Mm-hmm. They brought them in the 1800 mainly. They took the cuttings and then they propagated them. So they worked for a long time reproducing plants from these original cuttings. What happened is that in the early 80s, some French nurseries started doing joint venture with American nurseries, shipping over their best cuttings from the best vineyard of Bordeaux or Burgundy and propagating now this improved genetics. So a lot of vineyards were replanting back then. And when I was there, I heard what they were doing. I also tasted wine already produced from these improved genetics varietals. Who knew that three years later, I would come in the East Coast to find the same scenario. This vineyard genetics that they planted in the 70s and 80s came from these lesser selections. I remember seeing here a vineyard of Merlot was just just two acres. 1991, in the harvest of 91, was fully ripe. We had a good weather. It barely made the red wine. My gosh. The cluster, there were big cluster, big berries, not much color, very simple, drinkable wine. So when I went back from my consulting uh, engagement, I told them basically there are very few little things that need to be changed, addressed, and, and improved. But I say, unless you plant this better genetic, better plants, you will never produce a great bottle of wine. So in essence, I told them, if you really want to do that, you have to plant your vineyards and remove all your 42 acres that you have planted. Already. I'm sure they really love to hear that. That was probably received very well. <laughs> I I was hired for telling the truth. Right, right. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that that after I said, I explained what was the way to unlock the mystery was to, to remove the vines and plant new ones. And they, I remember Mr. Ring said, well, it makes sense. I think you probably are correct. And for the reason I, I wish you could consider to go back Whew. and do it. Big decision. 
And I told him, well, let's talk. And two days later, I, we, uh, I came back to the U.S. with an agreement of engagement. And I started from scratch to, to do many things. <laughs> so. It's unbelievable. I think this is really the result of you being from Piemonte because you know that the land and the plant has to work together. And, Absolutely. And if they don't work together, then you're going to have really bad wine. Let's talk about the terroir of Monticello because we hinted at it before. East Coast viticulture does not always get the credit that it deserves. So I mm -hmm. would really love for you to talk about the Virginia mountains and the Piedmont where you are. One of the things that I love in, in previous conversations that you and I have had is how you, as you're driving around, can see all of the potential everywhere. And I would love for you really to explain to the audience what is in Monticello and why are you able to make such special wines? Because I think that that's, that's highly misunderstood. It's a matter of really understand what you see as a farmer. Uh, you can read all about it, but you have to do it. And then you have to observe a vineyard that you plant. It takes years. Even when I came, I found all these varieties. The first thing I did in 91, some variety, they only had 100 vines. I picked every single variety and make micro-fermentation. And I eliminated already right there a few things. And then uh, I started looking at introducing certain varieties that are more adaptable to clay soils. Among them is Merlot, Cabernet Franc. I did plant some Cabernet Sauvignon for a reason that it was a variety that, and it still is, is very important, is the most known, the most sold variety in the U.S. And within a few years, I understood very clearly that consistency on clay here comes from Merlot, Cabernet Franc, now also Petit Verdot, and then Nebbiolo. And it doesn't come as much from Cabernet Sauvignon. There are very few sites in Virginia that can produce with consistency high-quality Cabernet Sauvignon. But there are a lot of soil in it, a lot of vineyard in that area that can produce amazing reds from the other. What is important uh, here is not to plant in uh, vineyards that have a little slope, because vineyard and clay, they have, a, they have not much slope in case of rain, and more rain penetrates in the soil. Therefore, uh, the vines, if they have more access to water, they feed more. Plant, if they have water and they have nutrients in the ground. So I learned all of these nuances through several years. And then uh, from my learning, when I planted more vineyard, I knew even more precisely what to plant on specific slopes and direction. We have vineyard facing north, we have vineyard facing south. Beside the soil also, that's the other thing that's important to understand, is that Virginia is at the latitude of the south of Sicily, which is basically the northern tip of North Africa. Right. But uh, we are not perhaps as hot, believe it or not, in the past five years at least, has been more hot in most vineyards in uh, Italy than it's been here. Wow. We have to go all the way to 2010 to see a heat wave lasting more than a week over 100 degrees. Virginia is fairly south, although we have a big land mass to the west that mitigates the weather. So if we have weather from the south, brings up more humid air and a bit warmer. If it comes from the west or the north, it's more dry air, especially from the north, and it's cooler. So 
an average season in Virginia, we have colder winters mm-hmm. than we have in Sicily. We have actually colder winter all the time than we have in north of Italy or even in Burgundy. We go to temperature during the winter in the single digits. Now, some of that has to do with the elevation because you're in the mountains. Not as much. Where we are, vineyards are between 500 and 800 feet. Mm-hmm. But the cold winters here are really related to the position we have being from the east coast we have all the weather coming from west and north that it can be very cold especially from canada if you go up uh, above uh, 15 1600 feet on mountain vineyards here and there are a few then you get another gradient of altitude there you really are to a point where you may be an extreme position because you may be subject to temperature that going below zero maybe minus five minus ten at that level, the vines could be damaged at the bud level, kill the bud, then you have no crop. With this pattern of cold winter, wet spring, summers can be dry, can be more wet. And then a good average of drier weather we have is September, month of September or early October, as the one have the least amount of rain, which is when harvest happens. Right. I like to say that two vintage every 10 in Virginia, we can make a good wine. Eight out of 10, we can make from very good to excellent wine. And uh, that is an average that it's very comparable to other very important wine regions in the world, especially some that are in of European origin. So when people, sometimes they uh, approach me and they say, well, Virginia, the weather is too humid. How can you make good wine? And I listen for a little bit. And then uh, <laughs> I like to say, would you like to sit down and taste a couple of wines, maybe from 20 some years ago and see how they are. And that to me is the answer in the end is what's in the bottle? What can you produce? What style of wine? And uh, honestly, I have to say, I would have not stayed here right. 34 years yep. uh, because my dream was to live in a, in a beautiful place, immersed in nature, producing uh, great wines. And we do that. You absolutely do do that. So I want to go back to you're saying that there's a lot of clay in the soil, which is totally the South, but there are some different soil types. I look at the Monticello AVA Mm -hmm. and I look at you and I look at my friends at Pollock and at Afton Mountain. As you're looking around, it's very varied. First of all, like, do you think the AVA should be broken up into subregions? And, And also, do you think that there's untapped potential in some of the areas of the AVAs that no one is really seeing and should it be broken up by soil types or or is it just basically all clay? In the Monticello AVA, it is predominantly red clay. Mm-hmm. There are pockets of some different soil, but they're not as expensive. Uh, I think the most common, it is it is red clay. And in fact, uh, most of us, we focus on Merlot Franc. Mm-hmm. For our Bordeaux blends and Petit Bordeaux, not as much on Cabernet Sauvignon. I don't think it's a need to to break it up, honestly, into sub-AVAs. If you want to find very different soils on a larger scale, you want to go probably in the Shenandoah Valley, for example, where they do have a, a lot less red clay, they have some chalky soils. So... When you taste wines from this AVA, a certain style like a Bordeaux blend, you find a lot of consistency among them. And that's what makes a strong AVA is to have altogether style and a flavor profile 
Then there are within the clay soils, there are some that, uh, for example, have uh, some more stone, some they have more inclines, and therefore uh, they have less water retention. Mm-hmm. And also some of them, they have less access to food, less organic matter, so they can be less vigorous as soils. And so that's where you have to be very accurate about, in a more vigorous soil, the best is to plant Merlot because it's, it's the least vigorous plant. Cabernet Franc is a little bit more vigorous than Merlot. So you don't want to put Franc in a vigorous soil. You want to put it in a medium vigorous soil. In the appearance, they all look red like clay. But if you go below, you, you start seeing different compaction of clay, different composition with also other material that allow more permeation of water, therefore retaining less water. The slope is very important because if you go through a period of a rain, clay tends to take water in and it locks. If you have more rain and you're on a, you're on a slope, the water versus permeating, it runs down and you have less water retention. If you're in a flat area, then clay is terrible. Grapes don't like wet feet. Not at all. You have others, you have some very well-drained soils where you can have a lot of sand, you can have some stone. Even they're flat, they, you lose water quickly. The water goes, goes down and it doesn't affect as much. So that's the biggest mistake is plant vineyard in, uh, in slopes that are less than, let's say, 5-6%. We'll take a step away from this awesome podcast. I hope you're enjoying this. I love hearing from people like Luca. He's been there a long time, has a lot of perspective, has seen what's going on in Virginia. And I think for those of you who haven't had a chance to try a Virginia wine or go to the region, it's kind of motivating. I think listening to him makes you kind of want to go check it out. It is gorgeous, by the way. And the wines are delicious. So different from anything else that you'll get from anywhere in the U.S. All right. Let's talk about Wine Access, my exclusive sponsor, please. If you have not joined the Wine Access Wine for Normal People Wine Club, get on it today, please. Wineaccess.com slash normal is how you're going to do that. Wineaccess.com slash normal. I just finished doing the videos and the customized letter for the Q1 shipment. These wines are awesome. Six bottles, 150 bucks, shipping's included. We worked so hard to make sure that these wines are spectacular. Also, if you want to just pick out the wines for yourself, you don't want to do the wine club, go on wineaccess.com slash WFMP. That will let them know that you found out about them through the show. They have everything. They've got really iconic and expensive brands that are hard to access. That's why it's called Wine Access and small brands and interesting things that you really won't see elsewhere. Their team has great relationships. The notes that they provide you, there's such an education focus. It's a great fit for me, for the podcast and for you as a fan of this show. So here's what you're going to do. Go to wineaccess, wineaccess.com slash normal. Check out the wine club. Join today. Also go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP and get into the site. Get 10% off your first order. It's a go-to source for everybody who starts shopping there. Wineaccess.com slash WFMP and wineaccess.com slash normal for the wine club. Do it today. Also, I know you're looking for back episodes of the podcast. Well, we have now put that as a membership 
perk for patrons. It has taken 14 years to build up that catalog. It has taken a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. As you know, content is free sometimes to you, but it's not free to the producers. So as a thank you, as an appreciation to the patron community, that is now a perk of Patreon. If you would like access to the back catalog, join Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash wine for normal people. You will get a link that you can paste in your podcast player and you will have access to all the back episodes from January 2011 until now. So please become a patron today if you're interested in that back catalog, patreon.com slash wine for normal people. Now let's get back to Luca and this really cool, awesome podcast. I love the wines of Barbersville, a great region and one that once you go, you'll definitely want to go back. Let's get back to the show. This is very important stuff that you're talking about because it is not easy to do viticulture in Virginia. So what kind of skill do you and Fernando Franco, who's your viticulturist of 25 years, how do you work together to make these decisions? And how do you figure out how to coax the best out of your wines? You really have to do a lot more analysis, don't you, than if you were, if, if, the Zonians had bought something in Napa. Absolutely, yes. And not only here, we have many different slopes, is that sometimes we plant a three-acre vineyard and it is on a slope that undulates. <laughs> and so you have area where you have more water retention, some area of less. It's a bit more complicated, that's for sure. But in the end, uh, we do it. I have a vineyard that is in front of the vineyard where here, where you were just a few days ago. It's three acres of Cabernet Franc. The top part of Cabernet Franc and the lower part, they retain a little bit more water. And in many vintages, that Cabernet Franc is down blended uh. into our less expensive Merlot and Cabernet. And then the center portion, which has better soil that, that retain less water, that always goes into our Cabernet Franc. It's one block of three acres, but for us, it's divided in three sections. It's like Burgundy almost, isn't it? I mean, it's like this mosaic of figuring out every vine and trying to figure out even within your vineyard where you can plant and should you plant something different in one section versus this section versus another. Do you play around with clones also to see if you can get less vigorous clones at one part of the vineyard? And yes. Yes. I mean, I'm sure it's just maddening though. Is it sometimes? Yeah, it, it is. It was especially for us when we had to do it and we were among the very first doing it. We had different clones, different rootstocks that they also regulate how the plant uh, feeds. So it was a bit frustrating when you have to do it all on your back. Any vineyard that want to start establishing now, the worst thing they can do is plant uh, what they like to drink. Right. Uh, or they think they know better and they do anyway what everybody says you shouldn't do. <laughs> you never know. I want to talk about that. You brought yeah. it up, so I'm going to bring it up now, too. Okay, so Barbersville, the first major successful winery in Virginia using Vitis vinifera. You guys are the standard bearer, and you have continued to have success. But I have to ask you this. Why is it that there are still only a handful of wineries that make world-class wines in Virginia? And it seems like this time, I will tell you, it's been a while because I, I haven't been back in a while. It just seems like you and the others that I call the Grand Cru of Virginia, you keep getting better. And then unfortunately, there seems to be this enormous gap between you 
and then the others. And I rarely go to a wine region where I have undrinkable wines. I had some wines that were just simply undrinkable. And some of them, I'm not going to mention who they were from, but some of them are from places that have reputations that are decent. So I got to ask, you guys keep getting better. You keep doing the right thing. You know, I mentioned Pollock. I mentioned Afton Mountain. We see this handful of wineries, both where you are in Monticello and then also in Northern Virginia. I mean, it's mostly Glen Manor and Linden. And we see these really great places. I don't know why it can't be more universal. Can can you talk to this? Yeah, most of it comes down to who is the good farmer and vineyard that understand that if they want to grow, the best thing you can do is grow your own grapes or in some cases, establish a relationship with a grower that works for you, that takes direction from you. And then you can maintain that quality with growth. A lot of vineyards, I believe that they do some plantings. Some, they probably do it also well in the right place, do the right way. Then what is difficult here is to take control of that vineyard as it matures, as the plant become adults, they become more vigorous. You have to learn how to control them. And then you have to treat them with love and respect, the way you prune them, the way you crop them. If you overcrop them for a few years, you deplete them. Mm-hmm. And then they become sick. They, they don't take well the cold weather, of a very cold winter weather. So it's all about how good you are as a farmer and how committed you are to quality. Some vineyards, I think they lose a little bit control over that. They have more uh, requests for wine. They may start to buy grapes on the open market, looking more at the price and the quality just to make more. Some vineyards, in some cases, they make their flagship red wines in vintages that are lesser seasons, like 2018, 2011, 2000, 2003. In those vintages, for example, we don't produce octagon or we make less of the Cabernet Franc. We sanction heavily our blending. That's why also we have a lower tier of wine that we sell for very accessible into the mid-upper teens. Then we have another segment in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 60s. That way I can really be more restringent in a lesser season. I cannot produce the same volume every year. Some wineries instead, they just don't do that. I have this theory, and you might not like it, but this is what I say. In Virginia, you can either pick wine or weddings. (laughs) (laughs) So the the ones that have the weddings on the first page, you know, are not going to be good wine. And that's kind of how I'm going by it now. Because... If you go to every single good vineyard, I know you do some weddings at Barbersville, but it's not yes, on the to- it's not on the front page, you know. No, and I it's think not our. You got to hunt yes. around for it, and I swear that in in Virginia, that is the adage: it's wine or weddings, and you can tell immediately what the focus is based off of that. But I'll let you comment on that, but. You know, we talked about this global perspective that you have, the Zonines have. There's all these French people. And by the way, I do have to say they're working at the best wineries for the most part. Yeah. So maybe I'm wrong about the wine versus wedding. There's also this European influence. And then there's winery owners and farmers in the area that don't have global experience. So is that part of it? Because, I mean, you look at all of the people like Pollock's got a French winemaker. 
King family has a French winemaker. Afton Mountain has a French winemaker. So as we're looking yeah. at this, and then there's you, who's Italian, and Gabriele, you know, he doesn't make wine anymore, but he taught his sons how to do it. So am I wrong about the weddings and maybe it's a European thing? No, no, no. Well, on the weddings, I think it's not an absolute because there are a couple that do weddings and they make great wines, but Very there few. are a lot of, there are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of wineries that they make what I call tourist wine. Right. Tourist wine is a wine that is drinkable. It's not a great wine. And people invest much more heavily in buildings for, for the tourists that they invest in vineyards. And some have almost no vineyards, like maybe an acre or two, and they have millions of dollars invested in buildings. And what do they do? They buy grapes, again, from the market, and they don't care the wines to be super uh, beautiful. People, uh, they visit, they're willing to spend 30, 40 dollars a bottle for something that... It's totally undrinkable. I'm sorry. It is totally oh. undrinkable. I was at one of those wineries. I'm not going to say who it was okay. on air, well. but it was a beautiful property and they'd spent so much money and it was packed and the wines, I couldn't yeah. finish one I, of them. Yeah, it's too bad. It's too bad, but yeah, there, so, there is some of that. What about this European thing? Am I onto something there? I think Europeans, uh, they European winemaking philosophy and style of winemaking we use is never geared toward a very big wine, lots of oak, very powerful, very dense. When we make wine, we think food, we think create balance, create elegance, ageability. Right. Even some of our reds, uh, the way we make them, a lot of people are resisting to like them because they are looking for a wine to ready to drink at a younger age. Right. I'm not saying you cannot drink a Roctagon when it's young. We just started releasing 2020. It's tight. The wine is a bit too firm. You need to decant it. You need to drink it with something very high fat like a, a ribeye. But through the years, vineyards like ours and, and some others doing this type of wine have collected uh, a lot of uh, clients that they know that. And they're starting to buy those wine. They put them away. They're aging them. And they become not only beautiful, but they become very age-worthy. We had that attitude from the very beginning here at Barbosa. When I came in, I continue it. And I never looked to produce uh, white wine with residual sugar to be more drinkable. I never looked to produce red wines with very low tannin, supple and soft, and maybe with some oak. That's what was selling predominantly. Today, finally, the market is starting to shift. Type of clients that we have, they really understand their wines. And also, they say wine critics that for many years didn't have a great thing to say about Virginia. They are now starting to open up uh, some more, some a little less, but they're definitely op opening up, especially because they're admiring wines that we have produced in the 90s and 2000s. They're in perfect condition. And that is a combination of soil, weather, and the people that came in to launch uh, this new region. Well, I think that's an interesting point because I almost feel like the first people to say that Virginia wines were really good were British. I mean, yes. I think that you got more credit there and it's still, Absolutely. I don't, I know it's not as hard for Barbersville because you've been around so long, but I know that some of the, even the great wineries of Virginia can't get into DC restaurants, for instance, you know, they won't even look at their wines. 
it's hard to not have support from your local market. I think that is one thing about the Finger Lakes and Long Island that I will say. New York City is super supportive of their wines. And I don't understand why the D.C. market is not more supportive of Virginia wines and why it took American critics longer yes. to come around than British. Because the first I heard of great Virginia wines was Jancis Robinson talking about it. Yes. Jason Robinson, Michael Broadbent, Stephen Spurrier, Andrew Jefford, all from the UK. Right. They basically said, you know, this is a world-class wine, period. Right. Who cares if it's from Virginia? I cannot give you a reason, or I never understood what is the reason for, for such uh, still stiffness, especially from uh, retailers and uh, restaurants. It makes me a bit mad when I hear... These chefs talking about uh, local food and this and that, and then they don't have a Virginia wine on the list. So I guess they don't think wine is a farm product. They think it's made in a like factory, beer. right? Yeah. yeah, in a factory. That's the point. It's getting better. It's getting better. But I would have thought we would be much further ahead after 34 years of the total consumption of Virginia wines. In Virginia, only 6% is Virginia wine. My gosh. Whereas, whereas you go on Washington State, Oregon, yeah. they're above 50. Yep. California is above 60. Right. So I'm still hopeful, but... Uh, Let's talk about your wines. Can you talk about Octagon and the history, how it became so famous, and what the special sauce is? I mean, is it about... The vine age, yeah. because you've been growing vines for a long time, or is it more about the winemaking and understanding? I mean, is it terroir? Is it you? What? Which one is it? I think it is taking the right decision on what our terroir, our soil and climate can do best. We really figure out what gives us consistency, and I've mentioned it, Merlot Franc Petit Verdot. It took a little bit of time to understand that. And you understand that uh, I, I still go back to you experiment, you observe the results. When you have tangible results, so you can taste the wine after not just when it's young, but when it's aging and when it's aged in bottle, then that gives you confidence that you're on the right track. That's what we have done. If uh, some other grape would have done better, if Cabernet Sauvignon would have done better, we would have pursued more Cabernet Sauvignon. There's no gravel um, anywhere. So where are you going to grow and, it? Uh, exactly. So Cabernet Franc now is the most uh, grown red grape in Virginia. We are the most that we grow in the state also. After having understood well uh, the farming portion, which is the one that took much, much, much longer, then it comes into play the winemaking. And in the winemaking, you can choose to ferment a certain way, age a certain way, more or less oxygen into aging, if you use more oxygen uh, in winemaking, in the aging, uh, you do a lot of racking, oxygen goes in, you mature the wine, you make the, tan the tannins, you make them more supple, and the wine is more rewarding when it's younger, but sometimes uh, it's a risk that then the wine will not age as well. Right. So we had to take some very firm positions on avoiding trying to make wine to be consumed younger. If you say you make a... Your flagship red wine, age-worthy, you cannot have both. How did Octagon come about? What's the name about? Can you talk about that? Yes, it's a bit uh, complex, the story, but it's very compelling and, and interesting. When I came, my first vintage was 91. 
And I start to look into how could I produce uh, the best red wine I could with the vineyard where we were available. Because I had this desire to produce this wine and create a small lot to be released for the 20th anniversary of the estate in 1996. And so I created a blend of 1991 mainly and a little bit of 1992. I had some 1992 Merlot and I had some 1991 Cabernet Sauvignon, which was a very, very dry growing season. So I had some Cabernet Sauvignon, some Cabernet Franc, then I blend some Merlot from 92. I bottled the wine in uh, 1993 and I had no name. I had the bottle court. And it couldn't be vintage dated either, right? Because you blended the vintages. Uh, Octagon started as a first edition Octagon. The, I had this wine in the cellar. I started thinking about a name for the wine. There was, I had several ideas. I kept, it all, I kept all of this idea for myself. And then the more I learned about the estate, the more I realized that the word Octagon, it does connect a lot of the dots between the old world and the new world. All of mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson's drawings contain an octagonal feature within the building. Monticello has an octagonal shape room, same as our yes, ruin. Yep. The rotunda, the whole campus uh, of U- University of Virginia, at the end of the lawn, there is the rotunda, which is itself a beautiful octagonal shaped building. The, the original rotunda is in the town of Vicenza, where our founder is from. There you go. And it is owned by the friend that was a teacher of the School of Architecture at UVA. So it all came together. It all came together. And, I, and, and, and then we heard about Jefferson earlier about wine and food and, and architecture, balance, beauty. There was a type of man. And so I thought, this is a name that will bring everything together. So we put uh, on the label the floor plan of the building. Highlighted mm-hmm. is the octagonal room in gold. And then and wine was called octagon. And so I created the name, I register it, I print the label in a cheap way here by a local printer, and I presented it at the dinner on the 20th anniversary, and nobody had ever seen the bottle before. Oh, my so gosh. It was, a, it was a very successful. From that point on, I, we decided to do it again, but I didn't do it again until 1997, when I had finally in production the vineyard that I knew would produce a great wine. I did it for to celebrate. But I held myself from doing it again until I could put a name on a great bottle of wine. 97, 98, 99 were great vintages. And by the early 2000s, that's when we start getting some uh, amazing reviews from critics from the UK. They were tasting our 97, 98 Octagon saying, this is world-class wine. In 2001, at the tasting with uh, Michael Broadbent, which was one of the critics that tasted the most times, the most famous first growth of 1945 vintage and vintages from the 1800s. And he was here at a dinner fundraising event for the launch of his book. And I sat with him and I was talking about Octagon and he Loved it. And he say, but why do you choose to, instead of vintage dated, call it first edition, second edition, third edition, fourth edition? And I said, well, because, you know, I come from a region in Italy where you have to do exactly what they, what they tell you to do. <laughs> and I thought, I just am here. I'm free to plant whatever varieties I want, to blend whatever I want, best one I think I can make. It turned out that 97, the second edition was entirely 97. The third edition was entirely 98. The fourth edition was mainly 99, about 80%. And 20% was Merlot from 2000, which was really good. 
But after he said that, after explaining why, I say, well, I, I think you, this wine deserves to be vintage dated. And so in 2001, I started vintage dating what was then the fifth edition. How long can the wine cellar, how long can Octagon last? So far, I have not found any of the vintages that is showing more than fatigue, the showing sign that says you should drink it pretty soon. Last year, we did an event. I had a very good client of the vineyard reached out locally from on the Shenandoah Valley. And he said, Luca, I uh, have collected all of your vintages from 97 on, and I have, I have six bottles of each in my house. And I would like to have 20 of my friends to taste 18 vintages. And I would like to see if you could come and talk about uh, each of the wines. And my question to him back was, how much do I have to pay? <laughs> <laughs> and so we did this tasting. We opened 18 bottles. Each one was decanted. We tasted, they were all in perfect condition. And all the wines were just beautiful. I still have to find a, a bottle, unless you, there is the occasional bottle, you may have a bit more, a bit more mature because of the cork may have not been as perfect. Well, and then storage and everything. I mean, you just don't know. But what yeah. we have here has been always kept in, in perfect conditions. So that's why today at the, our wine library, we still have wines from 97, 98, all the way up to current. So we have this beautiful Bordeaux blend in Octagon. But let's talk about Nebbiolo because Nebbiolo does not travel well. It does terribly almost everywhere else except Piedmont. And then there is your Nebbiolo. I love Octagon, yeah. but I've told you many times, yes. your Nebbiolo is my favorite of all of your wines yeah. for the Reds. And the Vermentino, which I would also like you to yeah. talk about, is a stunning triumph of a white wine. But the Nebbiolo, time and again, every time I taste it, I am just blown away by it. And I don't understand how you're doing this because... It doesn't do well anywhere. People but, try to grow yeah. Nebbiolo all the time and they're terrible at it. So what is this? What is the secret sauce I, here? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I tell you, I can tell you for sure one thing. It's, uh, I planted it strictly out of desire. There was no logic, especially when you're told where I grew up there. So, you know, even in Alba, people that grow Nebbiolo on the other side of the river, in, in the Rovero district, they, they say, no, nah, you know, they cannot make a great Nebbiolo. They do, actually. When you grow up being told the same thing on and on and on, you don't have any expectation that planting Nebbiolo here in Virginia would, would have worked. And that's why I only planted half an acre. And I say, let me try it, you know. And it turned out to be the first vintage, a very good growing season. The wine was quite remarkably good. The thing I noticed was that at the younger age, let's say a year after the vintage, the wine was showing some characteristic that you would find in an, in an Italian Nebbiolo, perhaps three, four years down, down the road. And that created a bit of suspicion uh, in my, my thinking that, uh, well, maybe, you know, it's, gonna age, it's not going to age well. It's going to be, uh, become more decrepit sooner. I decided still to sell half and keep half. And I'm glad I kept half of it because what happened, that that faster uh, ripening, maturation, let's say, it tapered and it stayed very consistent. 
And as time went by, I, I just make me happier and happier. I, I still open here and there some 98s, and I taste them side by side with some great Nebbiolo from 98. And in all the cases, I'm sorry to say, our Nebbiolo, it's in better shape. It is so good. What are you growing it on? What's your soil type for the Nebbiolo? Is it similar to what you would grow in Alba no, or, or in Piedmont? No. In Alba, in Piedmont, there is some clay, but there are... Uh, yeah, there's a there little are, bit. They're white soil, they're chalky soil, different pH. Right. And then some are grown in very steep slope with a lot of sun, which now is not a good thing. The best sites now are in cooler exposures, which when I was there in the 70s and 80s, they would not ripen. They would mm-hmm. just make very hard wines. They will never labeled as Barolo or Barbaresque, but are labeled as a Nebbiolo de la Lange. So very cheap. So who knew? That's why I say, I don't know. I cannot understand. Uh, all, all I can understand is what I taste. Uh, when it comes to winemaking, grape growing, it's, it's very easy to grow. It makes big clusters. We, need, we leave no more than five, six clusters because it's a high-yielding variety. If you yield a lot, you make a very drinkable wine that is a bit more astringent and very little color. But if you reduce the yield, then you ripen it well. The other thing that's really fascinating with Nebbiolo is that it's very resilient to rain when it's close to ripening. It doesn't, huh. it doesn't rot. It, a lot of it is associated with natural wax on the skin of the berries. Yeah, there's that the bloom, right? The yeah, fog yeah. on it. Yeah, yes, and yeah. you take a cluster on a bureau, you immerse it in a container of clear container of water. You see almost an air bubble around it. It's, it repels, wow. which sometimes when we have rains toward the end of the season, other varieties, they don't take it as well. Barbera, for example, the other grape from Piemonte, it's uh, somewhat inconsistent for us. If it rains, it makes a very simple wine. If it's a dry season, it makes a, a more concentrated wine. When people ask me what's your favorite wine, I say, well, to drink is Nebbiolo. To make, for sure, is Octagon because it's a lot more engaging, more complex, a lot more challenging. So many different variables, many different blend options. So. What about Vermentino? So, now you, you've really betrayed. Yeah. I mean, wh- what happened to the Arnais, Cortese? Uh, I, I mean, know. you just went off. You went straight to Sardinia and, <laughs> and Tuscany, betrayed everybody. Well, But God, you, that wine is delicious. Let me, let me share with you one, <laughs> one thing that maybe not everybody knows. So my father was born in Liguria in Savona. My grandfather which also had a vineyard when he retired. He was born in Cagliari in Sardinia. So I was, All right. I was exposed since a fairly young age for us Europeans in my teenage years. I was allowed to taste wine. I was exposed to a lot of great Vermentinos from Sardinia and Liguria. And I found that when it's well-made, it just makes one of the most beautiful, fragrant, almost slightly salty, it's such a great food wine. And a little silky yeah. too. And with like the bitterness on the end, everything. And and yours is so delicious. Thank you. Oh my gosh, it's just stunning. But it's just so crazy that you discovered you could grow your home grapes just because you kind of missed it. Yeah. And that's what you wanted to do. I tasted the Nebbiolo this time. I said it last time too. It's a triumph it is. to be able to make a Nebbiolo that tastes like that. Do you think there's any room for other Italian grapes that you want to try out? Uh, on some very well-drained parcels, and we have a few here where, where Frank does really well, I would have liked to try some Aglianico. 
is another variety mm. that strength, that freshness also requires a bit longer in aging to, to be beautiful. That's the one I would really like to maybe one day to try. Is it warm enough for Aldianico? I think most vintages we would have enough of a long season. Again, it goes to the fact that we are very much of sounder latitude. So we have a generous amount of, of warm weather. That's why Vermentino also does well. Vermentino is grown in, in some vineyards in central uh, Sardinia that they receive 110 every summer. Yeah. So that's the other reason why not only when I plant Vermentino, because I know it, because I knew it would do well in warm climate. I would have planted it much earlier, but only I had availability in 2009 from a nursery. But yeah, Alianico, it would be one. I really also like some wine made from Montepulciano. I found them very intriguing. If, but you need, again, very poor soil. Something that we tried also but didn't work was uh, Sangiovese, for example. It is really complicated, as Pinot Noir is. And uh, I almost like to say that like Pinot Noir or Nebbiolo or Sangiovese, they say, people say they're difficult to grow. I like to say, no, we're stupid to grow it in the wrong place. Sangiovese needs some calcareous yes. soils mixed in with the clay yes. or else you can't get you can't get heavy clay and, and Sangiovese. You'll get yucky results. So Sangiovese, sure. we plant two, uh, an acre and a half. And then in 2018, uh, I finally pulled it out. Never to be replanted. You can drink it from Chianti. That's right. fine. Let's look at the exciting future of the Monticello AVA. I mean, and I guess... I'm going to ask this again because I do see this divergent future. Is the future for Barbersville different from the future of Monticello? Because, you know, you and the couple others doing this world-class wine and then the tourist wine or the wedding wine, as I like to call yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think uh, there will always be a, a, a different population of type of uh, winery as a business models. Although I, I see uh, more and more precise selection of sites, a hiring of consultants that are very capable, that, that develop their experience in this district. So we're in a very good position to see very good growth. A lot of it is concentrated in a radius of about four, 35, 40 miles. I think it's a very bright future for the region. We're going to see more and more great wines. We're going to see more and more vineyard learning how to set aside and age their great bottlings. I hear more and more people doing that, the great dedication. It all will increment the perception of uniqueness and quality that this region already has, but I think it's going to grow quite a bit. And you don't find it frustrating that sometimes the wedding wines are putting forth their wines for the reputation? No, it doesn't bother me in the end. Uh, they also attract uh, perhaps a different type of drinkers that that, yes, that right. are not as demanding for a great glass of wine. It's like, uh, you know, some people, they like to get their coffee from the big uh, companies that you find in fast foods. They think it's great coffee for whatever reason, but great coffee is not there. Great coffee is uh, when you go to the small uh, the places where they really research uh, how to toast to perfection. Let's face it, the only place to get great coffee is in Italy. <laughs> Let's be very clear. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a culture. It is 100% true. It's a cultural uh, upbringing. You know, we, it's, if you do your coffee, if you don't do it perfectly in Italy at the bar, you can close quickly. But it's, it's something to develop with time. Luca, thank you so much for joining me. This was so fun to talk to you. I really appreciate not just how amazing your wines are, your dedication to Barbersville, but also the fact that you're really willing to share a lot of information about 
the industry and just be honest about what's going on there because the people who are listening to this show are going to be very interested in Barbersville and they're all going to be interested in some of the other wineries that we're talking about. And I think those represent and you represent the true potential of what Virginia has to offer when you pay attention to what's going on there and you really care. Yeah. So thank you so much for everything that you do. And you can go to Barbersville. You should go definitely go visit because it's a great experience. BBVwine.com is the website. Also, world-class restaurant Palladio is there. You can stay on the property and it is just a wonderful place to visit. Luca, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much to you for reaching out. And I'm sorry I missed you when you came to visit. I'll see you next okay. time. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>